we started a new series, and the title of this series is called Expansion. Expansion. And I love the subtitle of this series. It really gets to kind of the heart of what we're looking at is reaching out to people who are different than you. And here's what I know is that as we look into the book of Acts this morning, and that's where we're going to be hanging out, is that God was expanding, expanding his grace and the message that he wanted to communicate to the world. That Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, overcame death, extends that eternal life and invites us into a process where we not only become people who get to reap the benefits of eternal life, but we also have this thing called life that is an adventure that we get to partake in this side of heaven. And I love it because we're looking at the early church and last week we kind of focused in on some complaints. Sometimes you come to church, and how many of you guys know there's some things that you complain about? Because things don't always run perfect, because how many of you guys know we are imperfect people? So the early church, man, it was like growing. It was expanding. And the early church, they were so bent on, we're going to be one family. We're going to be one family together. And unfortunately, as things grew, as the message of God, as the message of what Jesus had done began to spread, they, they encountered some family issues. One of those being that some widows were not being fed. The distribution of food that was going towards the community as they chose and decided to be one family wasn't being met. So the apostles said, hey, we can't do everything, so we need to delegate. So we see that there's this group of people that they delegate to who end up being the solution to the problem. And we can be the same people, right? We can be people that complain but never contribute. But at some point, we got to make that transition. we got to understand that we are the solution to the problems in front of us. So... This morning, we're going to look at one of those people. The narrative of the, of the book of Acts begins to shift, and we begin to look at this man called Stephen. And Stephen was one of these guys that said, yeah, I'm going to help with the distribution of food. I'm going to help with this kind of family issue that has begun to rise up as we've grown, as we've multiplied. And Stephen, in essence, he was helping the church make progress. And this morning, that's, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about progress, and we're going to use the biblical narrative as our guide to understand what this progress looked like for this group of people that was sharing this good news about what Jesus had done. That he not only was thrown in the grave and murdered, but he rose again in glory. And people saw and had, or were actual eyewitnesses to this very account. So as this message and the, the goodness of God begins to spread through what Jesus has done, we're going to look at progress. And I titled the message this morning as The Target and the Shooters, if you're taking note. The Target and the shooters. What do I mean by that? Well, first, I want us to understand the early Christian claim during that time, the fact that Jesus had supposedly rose again in power and in glory and his church was expanding. There was progress that was happening in terms of religious progress during that time. The God of the God of Israel, of his ancestors, right, in fulfillment of the purposes for which he gave the law, the temple, all of these things that the Jewish nation was so used to, he was doing a new thing. Christian thought during that time was God is up to something new because Jesus, the Messiah, he has fulfilled what Jews were glean. They were, they, were, they, were, they were wanting, they were desiring all along, and Jesus had come and became the fulfillment of that. But how many of you guys know people missed it? In fact, the, the very people that murdered Jesus were the ones that were praising him as he came into Jerusalem and a week later ended up being the ones who murdered him. Not everybody was open to progress and change. It kind of reminds me, uh, it's almost been two years since Callie and I have moved to Ponca City and, and became the pastors of this church. And we moved our family 
uh, just June. June will be kind of our two-year anniversary. And I'll never forget of the progress of understanding that we had our lives kind of settled in California for over 10 years, and we needed to actually move everything that we owned and move our lives completely uh, to Oklahoma, and specifically Ponca City. So it was a little, over, a little less than two years ago, and I'll never forget it. One of the big stresses, you know, is like, how are we going to move all of our stuff? How are we going to move all of our belongings? Progress for me at that time was like, we need to get a moving truck. Like, we need to figure this out, right? And we were asking around, and it was, it was crazy because um, there was a friend of ours whose dad had dealt with a lot of, like, cross-country moving jobs. And he said, here's the deal. He said, actually, you know, if you, go, if you guys are going the U-Haul route, which we had been talking about, he said, y- y- what you really want, need to understand is that if you choose to rent a U-Haul from anywhere outside of L.A., you're going to realize that you're going to save thousands of dollars. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what often people will do is they, they'll actually rent a U-Haul out in Las Vegas, which is about a four or five hour drive from Los Angeles, and you're, re- you're going to realize that you save thousands of dollars just by renting the U-Haul out of a different location. And I was like, no, no way. And no, legitimately, I looked it up around different U-Haul locations and realized like it was the difference of like a few hundred dollars to do this versus like thousands of dollars if I was to rent the U-Haul out of L.A. So I was like, okay, babe, this might seem a little bit weird, but I'm going pl- to pay for a one-way ticket to Las Vegas where we're going to rent the U-Haul, save thousands of dollars, and I'm just going to make the trek and drive it all the way back to Los Angeles. And even if we get dinged with some extra mileage charges, it's not even going to like pale in comparison to the money we're going to save simply just by renting a U-Haul out of Las Vegas rather than Los Angeles. So anyway, so this is what I did. I, I had the whole plan in motion, and I took a car to the airport, and then from the airport, I took a plane to the Vegas, or to the Vegas airport, and then I took... To the Vegas airport, I went, I, I got an Uber. I had a coupon for Uber. Anybody familiar with Uber or Lyft? I think I actually used Lyft, this taxi service. They're like, hey, free, your first time's free. So I was like, well, I'll save a few bucks. So I took a taxi when I landed in the morning, and the taxi then took me to the U-Haul place where I rented the U-Haul truck, and I just drove a four- to five-hour drive and had to spend a little bit of money on gas and made it all the way back to our house in L.A., which we then took that U-Haul moving truck all the way to Oklahoma and saved thousands of dollars. But here's the deal. Just because when I got to the airport and I leave the car behind to get to Las Vegas or I leave the plane behind or successfully get to my destination and stop traveling doesn't mean that there's something wrong or there's something bad with the car that got me to the airport, right? Or the Uber that got me to my actual moving truck, right? Those things were extremely good. The progress that it took me to get to my location and my destination to make progress in this big job that I had to do, there's nothing wrong with the Uber. There's nothing wrong with the car. I'm thankful. I'm glad that I actually did those things because in turn, how many of you guys know, that saved me a lot of money. But it got me to my destination. Just because the progress had different forms along the way doesn't mean the things along the way were actually bad in of itself. The early Christian claim was one of religious progress. The God of our ancestors in fulfillment of the purposes for which he gave the law and the temple, all these things that were talked about in the Old Testament, come forward and God is now doing a new thing. There is progress. But that doesn't mean we reject the things along the way or think that they're bad, but we understand that there is a destination there is a job to do, and God is up to a new thing. Religious Jews during this time were very, very mad. 
when they heard about what Jesus had done and the message of Jesus began to spread during this time. They became what I would call this morning as our title of our message, they became aggressive shooters towards specific targets. And that specific target, as we look in the narrative of Acts this morning, is a target named Stephen. This man who chose to feed the widows of his own kind, chose to find a need, had a complaint and saying, this isn't happening, and then chose to be one that contributes to the actual need. So we're going to look as the narrative shifts in Acts chapter 6 this morning, verses 8 through 15, in Stephen, the target this morning. It says this, it says, now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say this, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, I just pray that as we dive into your word, as we break this down this morning, that, that your word would just come alive in our hearts. That there would be something specifically you want to speak to each and every one of us, and we wouldn't miss it this morning. God, we're thankful that you're a big enough God to deliver messages at the right time just when we need it. So, Lord, I pray that that would just happen this morning, that that would go forth. We know that when we open your word, it's not just ink on pages, but it's word that becomes alive and active in our lives. So, Lord, we receive it and we embrace all that you want to speak and all that you want to do in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? So we're going to go back to the beginning of this little section of Scripture and break it down. So the first verse in this section is Acts chapter 6, verse 8 that we're going to look at. And it says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. I love what just happened right here. Because last week we just talked about Stephen being a guy who's like, I'm just going to, I'm raising my hand to fulfill a practical need, Right? And in between the verses, we don't know necessarily what happened, but what we do know is some guy raised his hand to fulfill a need, and now we're seeing him operate in miraculous power. I love when the Bible talks about specifically being faithful with little and then being given a lot. We see this parable that Jesus talks about. I love this illustration. We see Stephen saying, you know what, I'm going to fulfill a practical need, and then his life gets overwhelmed with the power of God to do miracles. It wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, this is your ministry. You're going to do miracles. It was like, no, I'm actually going to fulfill a need that we have as the message of God begins to expand and the power of God began to flood in his life and he began to do miracles just as Jesus did. And what's amazing about this is it's very clear as we read that verse. He had signs and wonders and this was a phenomenon for the academically equipped during this time. It was hard to argue with. Because there was such a divide in the social class during this time, it was like, well, those who were higher educated, like those who could actually get into the, the inners of society and have a good ex- education were considered the top, right? So you have this man who just was like, hey, I'll do it. I'll fulfill the need. And God begins to give and convince others of this power that was among him. 
It was a way that was like, yeah, there's the academic elite, but how about this guy who's not academically equipped, but he's equipped with something that's really, really hard to argue with, the power of God, the power of the living God, that same power that, con that rose Jesus from the grave, come on, now lives within God's followers, and we begin to see the power and these signs and wonders begin to just burst out of the life of Stephen. So in a social power conflict, this was threatening the dominance that existed during the Roman rule of this time. And for many, the Jewish and religious elite were saying, God, how could God be doing a new thing? They were missing it as, as they were really suspicious about this power that began to manifest in the life of Stephen, the apostle, who just literally signed up for a job. And that's so funny with God sometimes. Like you literally like, yeah, you say yes to something, and you don't realize the roller coaster that God is going to lead you on from that point on. It's funny how God works in other ways. I look back at the yeses in the early days of my faith and just think about the journey that God's taken me on. How amazing is that? But God calls us to be faithful to those little things on the front end. We're not going to be like a spiritual guru when we, you know what I mean, by just saying uh, yes to the big things like speaking engagements and all these things that sometimes we just fault, faultfully worship, right, in our day and age. But God is looking for simple servants who are going to just say yes to the little things and he's going to allow us to be faithful with so much more and he desires this within his church. But let's continue in Acts chapter 6, verse 9. It says this. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue, of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. See, we're talking about this story that's happening in Jerusalem. And what Jerusalem was for the Jewish race and the Jewish people, it was a melting pot of people that had immigrated from different regions that were spread out and now we're coming back in. So you have this, all of these different sects of Judaism that existed in Jerusalem. It was a melting pot type of a city. It was just this hub of, of Jewish people from different backgrounds and different subcultures, right? So you had these people that were just getting so upset in terms of their customs of hearing what Stephen was telling them about what Jesus had done. People were mad. There were certain key things, certain symbols of what it meant to be God's people in the midst of, a, in the midst of like a, a wicked and pagan world, there was a lot of witchcraft going on. There was a lot of different spiritual things. So for the Jewish people during this time, they're like, we got to stay pure in the things that we feel like how we connect with God. But unfortunately, they were so bent on just like purifying and keeping their customs that they were missing out on the progress of what God was doing. They were missing the very Messiah that came before them and died for their sins, died an excruciating death, and then rose again. And this morning, I just want us to look at, there's four kind of key symbol things for Jews during this time. It's like, if you're a Jew, you don't mess with these things. You just, you don't, you don't mess with it. These are traditions that, hey, in terms of how we relate to God, this is history. This is what God's done in the past. You don't mess. One of those things, first thing, the temple. The temple represented this, this location that was where God dwelled, where heaven and earth kind of collided in this physical space, Right? And we see all the, the narrative of, 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 of God's people in the Old Testament progressing through the wilderness and carrying God's presence through the, the tabernacle, right? And then it found a resting place in Jerusalem in the temple. We have the law or the Torah, what we would call the first five books of the Bible, right? That's the Torah. That is what we would call the Old Testament, right? This book, these books of the Bible that they held tight to and had and meditated and, and had memorized, right? For the Jewish culture in this time, like, you don't mess with the law or the Torah, they focused, one key symbol, symbol for them was the Holy Land, and it focused in on Jerusalem, right? The location of the temple. This was a geography that represented 
for them so much history and things that they held on to. And then, of course, their national ethnic identity. identity. What it meant was for Jews, this was a massive race that represented we are God's people. And they also were very inclusive. And you read stories about this where people saw the God of Israel and said, I want in on that. So we have converts that were a part of this national identity of people. But it was like, these are the hills that we die on. So with all this ancient paganism going on, all these different gods that were being worshipped, their attitude was no compromise, no fancy new ideas, no nonsense. But for them, it changed the attitude in the heart. It changed in a way where it was like, I kind of have everything all together, and I know what I'm doing, and everybody else does not, right? You know what's really annoying to me as a person sometimes? People who think they've got it all figured out. People that have transitioned into, like, being worshipers of God to then having a God complex. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people in our day and age that carry this, this condescending kind of, like, uh, God's on my side, and, and with that, everyone else is an enemy. When, in fact, Jesus has called us to love our enemies. I think about that in our day and age in terms of sometimes how we as Christians or how the church has responded to people who have kind of felt on the outside. Let me, let me give us a few examples. I come from a generation that, that likes to ask questions. I'm a question asker. If we do something in church, I'm like, why do we do that? And, it, and if, we've, if we've distanced ourselves of understanding why we do it, that's what we would call empty liturgy, empty tradition. When you're just doing religious things and you don't even have a connection or an emotional connection or a spiritual connection to why you would even do it. And I come from a generation that asks questions, and this, this is a big one that I feel like gets asked a lot. How do we reconcile a literal seven-day creation narrative, like, a, like in the early days of the Bible, when the earth has been studied to be about 4.7 billion years old? That's a compelling question that needs an answer. It needs reconciliation. But unfortunately, if you're a person that has it all together, and some of this knowledge begins to kind of start creeping in your territory, there's a tendency for many of us to say, well, science is wrong. Curse science. Science and the Bible can't merge together. Because we are uncomfortable because we got good questions. People that are thinking about biblical interpretation in a way that we're not comfortable with, and we push those people away. Let me give you another example. How do we reconcile Christians who pray for healing and don't see answers? That's a, that's a really deep question. Because here's what I know. I've seen a lot of faithful people, faithful people who have followed Jesus their entire life, pass away from a terminal illness. And if that makes you uncomfortable, some people have reduced it down to, well, you just don't have enough faith. That can be one of the most damaging types of answers or excuses that doesn't merge with the reality of God. But when certain things get, creep up to us and make us feel kind of uncomfortable, we give simple and reductionist answers. And it doesn't merge with the realities of life. How about another great question? How do we reconcile pork-eating Christians? Meaning this, if you enjoy pork today, you got to go back to the Old Testament and realize that wasn't a benefit. That was actually something that God said, do not partake in. But we got a lot of pork-eating Christians today who pick and choose verses out of the Old Testament to tell people what they're doing is wrong. People pick and choose and say, and people look at them and say, I see you eating pork. It doesn't make sense. Logically, you pick and choose just for your agenda to slap people in the face with the Bible. And when we get uncomfortable with it, we're like, well, you know, we get very reductionist answers because it gets up in our space 
and it makes us feel really uncomfortable because God is maybe doing something new. And we want to just give simple, clean-cut answers, but how many of you guys know that that's not how God operates? God operates in a very complex way where, like I said earlier, you say yes to a small thing, and you get yourself into a mess where you're like, okay, God, now what do I do? And he's helping you. He's giving you the strength to endure. He's helping you understand that even in the midst of death or even in the midst of your prayers for somebody who maybe is, has a terminal illness and ends up passing away, that death is not the end. Come on, somebody. That Jesus conquered death. That that good news goes beyond even this lifetime and gives us a hope. And anything that comes against us, God wants to spin around and use it as a weapon for good in this world. But sometimes we just get so uncomfortable with good questions or the question, why? And we become people that really default to because the Bible says so. But how many of you guys know that we're coming upon a generation where because the Bible says so does not work as a leading excuse in discipleship anymore? People want deeper questions of their faith. People are owning their faith in a way that they want to understand how do science and the Bible, how do we reconcile those things? And I will say this morning, if we cannot reconcile the Bible and actual life, the Bible is irrelevant. Do we realize that? Have we thought about our own very faith and saying, well, I got my fairy tale faith over here and it actually doesn't even merge with the realities of life? If that's, if that's actually the, what you believe in your worldview, your faith is useless. Because I believe in a God where I understand as the creator of all things, everything he does brings purpose and meaning to the things that we see in our world. As you get deeper into God, as you have relationship with him, he begins to bring purpose in the things that many times we just tag with certain buttons or stickers. But we need to see the beauty and the reality of what God is doing because in this season of life, God is doing something new that's worthy to get excited about and seeing what God is doing. But so easily we can miss it because of our own pride or our own comfort. Come on, somebody. People during this time, they saw the proclamation of Jesus as a threat to that whole way of thinking and living. And I love it because Jesus' way of thinking confronted the very religious attitudes that kept people on the outside. But even as the title of this series, what is God wanting to do in his early church? He's wanting to expand. He's wanting to reach people that aren't just ethnically Jewish, but go beyond that. That there was a journey of progression along the way, and the people of God happen to be a vehicle during a specific season. That doesn't mean that they're bad. That mean we, doesn't, we don't look down upon that because it was a vehicle that God used. But in this season, God was doing something new through Jesus. And people were absolutely missing it. Want to do a good job of not reaching out to people who are different than you? Be a person that acts like you got everything figured out. Do that. And you'll realize not many people actually really want to hang out with you. You'll realize really quickly that this guy's obviously the expert and has an answer for everything. You know what one of the greatest things as a pastor I can do sometimes is say, I don't know. Because here's the deal. I'm not God. But here's my job is to point people to God. Come on, somebody. But here's what sometimes we confuse. Many times Christians experience salvation and then they begin to think and convince themselves that they're the very Savior. No, 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 no. We've experienced salvation and it gives us a right to be transformed by God, to live a life, to extend that invitation as best as we can to be a reflection of Jesus to anyone and everyone. 
And as long as you're breathing on this earth, you are a candidate for God's grace and his love. God is wanting to expand. Amen, amen. Okay, so let's continue. Acts chapter 6, verse 10 through 14. Let's look at what it says here. It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They throw Moses into it. It's like, hey, he's coming up against Moses, like this traditionary figure in our Bible that was a leader. God worked through him. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. See, I, I see this. The audience of Stephen, as he's telling people about Jesus, as his message is spreading, as he's as people are experiencing the ministry of God, the goodness of God miraculously, they had two choices. Admit that he might be right, and he's probably right, or throw as much mud that you can at him. And they chose the latter. And they didn't just throw mud at him. He became the target. And as we read, without, if you've read this before, Stephen lost his life simply because of being a follower of Jesus, trying to spread and trying to spread the goodness of God in his lifetime. He became the target. And it's interesting because we see this contrast that exists. Last week we talked about the, the, the leaders of the church praying and finding people that could fulfill this very need. Well, they chose. These were Hellenist widows that were, that were kind of not getting the food they needed. So what did they choose? They chose Hellenist people, this sect of Judaism, to be the ones that helped these very people. But also an additional thing that they noticed and that they kind of their expectation of them is these need to be People that are, are good people, have a good reputation, right? Men of good reputation began to be the ones that were chosen. And now we see a big contrast in this section of Scripture. These people that are defending their religiosity, but what are they doing? They're grabbing false witnesses. They're being crooked themselves. They're trying just to prove a point, and, and they're participating in very crooked behavior. Stuff that people with bad reputations would participate in, right? So we see this big contrast that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is trying to show us and understand that this was a blameless guy who's trying to spread the goodness of God and let others experience this new thing that God was doing. And meanwhile, you had religious people defending their rights and corroborating with people and trying to point figure, fingers and prove a point. Past generations, as we read in the scripture, and people today find real debate about actual topics difficult. You know how relevant this section of scripture is for us today in a very divided world that we live in? Here's the easier route in our humanness. Is we partake in the parody of debate, right? You basically give a dog a bad name, beat him for it, lash out, and make anyone the enemy who actually participates with that very dog. It's the parody of debate. Nobody's actually having humble conversation about actual issues, but many times it's missiles being shot at one another. And who can actually prove the point? Because when I prove the point, it makes me feel good. But in the meantime, I'm cutting off other human beings that have the ability to respond to a God who is gracious, who sees them and understands that not any of us have made it yet. 
Not any of us are God. And when we compare ourselves to God, we realize how small we are, but we also understand how God invites us onto a journey to be the very ones that extend an invitation to receive his love and his grace. We would rather in our human flesh buy into the parody of debate than actually have many times humble conversation about issues that exist in our very world. Healthy dialogue. There's far too much of this in the church. And here's what I believe the answer is. More listening. Less talking. More actual thinking. More careful and humble speaking. We can so easily buy into this very trap that these people bought, bought into to defend their religious lights and defending God. But so easily it, it integrates into the church and the church becomes a divisive vehicle. And we lose. We lose big time because we've lost opportunity to extend an invitation to people whose hearts are already hard. Because they're saying, that God, I don't want anything to do with that. Because I'm just watching the way that you act and you live and it looks a lot like everything else. Be different. You know what holy means? Being actually completely different than anything else. But many of us, we buy into the same devices, divisive narrative that makes us look like anybody and everybody else in the cesspool that exists right now in our culture. But God has called us to be bridge makers. To bridge to people who think, act differently than we do. Literally. Can I make this any more clear? Like the people that many times we paint as enemies in our life, God has called us to reach those very people. Hence why in the early church, God was expanding beyond a national identity of Israel. He wanted to go beyond those borders and to reach every human being who is a candidate for his grace and love. And in the meantime, guess who gets to participate and be vehicles of that mission? Us, his church. But we can so easily resort back to the religious, the defense, that let's find a reason to divide because it's so much easier. It's easier to deal in simple, clunky affirmations and denials. It's harder to actually appreciate, dig into the word of God and understanding there's, there's a narrative, there's a story that's progressing forward in a way where God's grace is bursting forth, getting to new points as it so does. I read this section of scripture and understand the points that God's trying to communicate to us as the church of today. But are we missing it? Because we're defending God just to defend God and cut others who God wants to bring in so desperately because he's continuing to expand. He's continuing to help us understand how do we reach people that think, act, and live differently than we do. And could we be the very humble vessels who choose to listen, not buy into the parody of debate, but actually get on a human level and trying to listen and understand someone else's perspective. You know, as a person that had come from the West Coast and moved to Oklahoma, I've had to learn how to do that at a personal level. There are certain things, there's subcultures that we get so used to. But I know, hey, the, the only way we can become a bridge is to take a position of humility and understand and ask good questions and relate and to encourage people to make Jesus number one and to follow him and to see what he says about things. Because we can so e easily begin to prioritize the wrong things and we miss Jesus altogether. Am I speaking to anybody this morning? Come on. Here's the main truth. God really did give the law in the temple. But this was a part of the great story which has now reached a new point. But unfortunately for Stephen and his hearers, this fell on deaf ears. People didn't see it. People missed it because of their defense, of their religion, their comfort, the things that they tried to so desperately protect 
then we get on to Acts chapter 6, verse 15, where it all kind of, it ends here. And it ends pretty climactically, and I don't want us to miss it. It says, all who are sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face, and his face was like that of an angel. First off, how do you know what an angel's face looks like? You know what I'm saying? But there, there's, there's a point of what the author Luke is trying to portray to us as the audience here. There's something powerful to the fact that his face is beginning as, as Pete, can you imagine for a second, the Sanhedrin being accused, how much pressure and stress this man feels in terms of the accusations that are coming against him. And he sits there in front of this crowd who so desperately wants to judge him, to penalize him, to create accusations against him. And he sits there and people begin to realize his face looks like that of an angel. It's, it's displaying a glory. It's displaying a confidence. He was the focus in the midst of the top legal body at the time accusing him. He found himself standing in the midst of this temple, this place where heaven and earth was known to intersect. And he began to stand as his very own temple where the glory of God began to manifest on him physically. Where people began to see the supernatural glory began to ooze from who he was physically. An overlap of heaven and earth began to manifest on Stephen as religious people were trying to accuse him, tell him what he was doing wrong, let him know that he's so far from God when really God was manifesting on him physically. Let's think about this for a second. There's an ironic thing that the author Luke is doing right here. Because the religious people were throwing out Moses. This guy's talking about Moses. He's rejecting Moses. When at the heart of what, God, what, what Stephen was trying to do wasn't. But think about this for a second. Think about the story of Moses if you're familiar with some of the stories, right? The burning bush, right? That, that, that Moses got face to face with God manifesting in a burning bush. And then we have later on, he leads the people to Mount Sinai where God gives commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments. And I love the narrative, the part where, where Moses, as the mediator, stands before God. He comes down the mountain, and what does he look like? The glory of God begins to manifest on his face physically. In fact, that Moses wore a veil because of it that, that hid the glory, right? Because so much glory, because he had spent so much time with God himself, this figure that spent so much time with God, glory began to manifest on his very face. People knew he was with God because they saw it on him. And the very people that were defending Moses saw the same glory of God beginning to manifest on Stephen. God was giving them opportunity after opportunity to say, this is me. But did they see it? Did they see God? God was giving every opportunity to get these people's attention. That same glory that was manifesting on the face of Stephen was the same glory that as the apostles were, were we're so concerned about Jesus dying, they saw him in his glory hanging out with Moses and Elijah. We read in the Gospels. Those very Old Testament figures showing that there is integration between what God was doing in the Old Testament and the New. But Jesus allowed something new to burst forth. There was a massive integration that was supernatural that was happening for Stephen. And it was happening before all of his accusers. And God was giving another opportunity to say, this man is, comes on behalf of me and what I am doing. Stephen is about to give a speech to explain what Jesus was all about. Stephen was witnessing 
the risen Jesus to his accusers physically, Stephen was about to die. This morning, I want to conclude on a question for us, this title. Are you the target of religious people or are you the religious shooter? Are you the type of person that loves people so deeply, chases after them, understand that God has called us to be people to reach out, be the vehicle to reach out to people who are different, you're going to attract some religious people. You're going to attract people that say you're not good enough, you're not doing it right, you got some rules to follow. Or are we actually the ones that find people to accuse and make the target? Love your enemies. But here's what I know. A byproduct of living like Jesus typically upsets. It does. But some of, some of us in the room were like, yeah, I have tons of enemies. My family hates me. No one wants to be my friend. Everyone's against me. You know what that typically means? That just might be you're being a jerk. And you just need to maybe adjust your attitude. That probably means you're not being a pure form of a reflection and a witness like Jesus has called you to. Amen? Maybe the problem is you. Maybe you're religious. Maybe it's time to step out of that victim mentality that everything in the world is wrong and nobody wants, because I'm on, behalf, I'm on behalf of God, but start to realize maybe you're the problem. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you're the one shooting at other people, making accusations, slapping people across the face with scriptures in the name of holiness, but maybe you're missing the whole point altogether. The byproduct of living like Jesus typically upsets a certain type of people, religious people. Because as a friend of sinners, you're going to upset people that think they're too holy. Jesus, the friend of sinners. I'm not saying, hey, I'm not saying, use wisdom. Your whole friend group is people that do things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Don't do that. But here's what I know. You should be befriending people that are different than you. And as a friend of sinners, you know what you're going to get oftentimes? You're going to get people that point the target at you and say, you know what? That, that's wrong. But when Jesus himself is a friend of sinners, as a lover of diversity, you're going to upset people that think it's all about them. As a lover of the nations, as a lover of having a heart to go burst forth globally, you're going to get people upset that think it's all about them and their comfort. But God wants to expand, and God is a global God. Come on, somebody. But you are going to upset some very people when you try to breach those lines who begin to think that life is all about them. Those are the type of people you're going to upset if you choose to have the same heart that God had as he's expanding his church, as he's making it a global church and not on one national ethnic identity. As a person who listens, has empathy and compassion, you're going to upset people that think that bullying is the best entry point in finding God. We got a lot of bullies in our day and age. Come on. You're going to upset the bullies when you actually have conversation, healthy conversation, and get into a relationship with people and actually hear them out. You are going to upset the bullies and the bullies are going to target you because what are you doing? You're being a vessel and a vehicle of the church that God designed and a mission that, of God that goes beyond what we'd ever think, ask, or imagine. Are you the target of religious people or are you the religious shooter? My prayer this morning is that we would understand that we are people that when we follow Jesus, Religious people are always going to say it's not good enough, but that's okay because we know firmly in our relationship with Jesus 
that he says that we are enough, that we stumble, that we are imperfect, but we are a work in progress, a renovation in progress, and we call it an honor to have people that are disconnected from the grace of God accusing us and saying that we're not good enough because we understand that we are not God. We are not the Savior. We are just pointing people to the Savior. My prayer this morning is that, man, if we've taken a posture of being the shooters, being the one that find target on people that we judge and we look down upon, it's time to take the humble position of Jesus and realize we do not have it figured out yet. And the type of church that he sees and desires is one that represents heaven, is one that is diverse, is one that has such a global reach and a subculture reach that everyone has an opportunity to hear his message and understand his grace and his love. But are we as the church, are we willing to take that challenge? My prayer is that we would be the people that choose to do that. Amen?